This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Concussion Management by Dr. Michael O'Brien, Danielle Thurston, and Rebecca Stevens. Hello, my name is Danielle Thurston, and I'm one of the Trauma Brain Injury Center nurse practitioners at Boston Children's Hospital. Hello, my name is Rebecca Stevens. I'm a nurse practitioner within the neurology department at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm also part of the Brain Injury Center here as well. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael O'Brien, and I'm the director of the Sports Concussion Clinic at Children's Hospital Boston. In this video, we'll be discussing concussion management and recovery. Definition. First, we'll discuss what is a concussion. Most people know a concussion is a brain injury. We describe it as a temporary brain cell dysfunction after a collision. The collision can be direct to the head or it can be indirect to the body uh, with enough force that causes a whiplash or ro uh, rotational acceleration of the head. In fact, this rotation or shifting of the brain in the skull is probably among the most important forces that occur and cause concussion in the first place. The shear forces or stretching forces that happen when the head and skull meet an immovable object like the ground and the brain keeps rotating or shifting in the skull, the shear forces or stretching forces uh, are the forces that injure the brain cells and cause them to be temporarily impaired. Generally, it's considered a functional injury rather than a structural injury of the brain, meaning that although there are microscopic injuries to the tiny, delicate structures of the brain cells, a concussion is not typically seen on CAT scan or MRI because the structure is not disrupted in a large sense. Instead, we rely on symptom reporting from a patient uh, or measures of balance, measures of motor speed, me uh, measures of memory to make the diagnosis of concussion rather than relying on CAT scan or MRIs. Symptoms. Diagnosis of a concussion is based on the mechanism of injury with present symptoms. Symptoms may be obvious and immediate, or they may appear hours after the initial injury. The most common initial presentation is nausea, altered consciousness, headaches, and dizziness. Beyond this period, headaches and dizziness are the most commonly reported symptoms. It may or may not result in a loss of consciousness. In fact, loss of consciousness occurs in less than 10% of concussions. The presence of loss of consciousness doesn't determine the severity or recovery of the concussion. And there are 22 typical symptoms that we associate with concussion. These are the type of symptoms we assess on the sideline and continue to assess on each particular clinic visit until we feel confident the athlete is fully recovered. Recovery. When an athlete has a concussion and we identify it, it's imperative that we do everything we can to avoid new collisions until we, we have confirmed that there's full recovery from that injury. During the time that patients concussed, there really is a window of vulnerability where new collisions, even relatively minor ones, can worsen symptoms or significantly prolong the recovery for that injury. In fact, it's easy to recognize a scenario where a player and student athlete with a mild presentation of concussion could have a longer or more complicated uh, process of recovery as opposed to someone who had a dramatic injury. For example, if we think about soccer, two soccer players in the, playing in the same game, one gets hit across the middle, has a big dramatic loss of consciousness and very dramatic presentation, everyone on that field will be on the same page. The coaches, the parents, the athlete themselves will likely recognize that this injury is serious and important 
she'll likely come off and won't have multiple collisions throughout that same day because the process of recovery will start immediately. Compare that with an athlete who's on the sideline away from the action of the play, gets hit and probably has a concussion but doesn't recognize it or the trainers or coaches don't recognize it. That athlete would be very much at risk for having multiple more collisions during that same day, having to go on to school the next day uninterrupted, go on to practice the next few days, and, and very easily could have several more collisions before she's fully recovered. It's that type of athlete with multiple collisions during that injured, vulnerable period that could have increased symptomatology and prolonged recovery. Those are exactly the kind of athletes we have to identify and be careful about uh, when they return back to their sport. The symptoms of concussion could be immediate or they may emerge over several minutes to several hours after the collision itself. When symptoms come up or if a concussion is suspected, the athlete should be removed from the practice or game and should not return to sport until they have been evaluated by a qualified clinician. This is regulated by state and national law. Imaging. If the neurologic exam is normal and if the athlete is proceeding and improving as we expect, we try to avoid imaging such as CAT scan, which has some radiation exposure to it. If, however, there's confirmed loss of consciousness or if there's progressive worsening of symptoms over the fir first few minutes or first few hours, then evaluation in the emergency department is likely beneficial. If there's persistent vomiting or lethargy, and lethargy is like severe fatigue or sleepiness, then often a CAT scan is considered in the very beginning of the diagnosis period. This is done not really to make the diagnosis of concussion, but in fact to look for other conditions such as bleeding or fracture. MRI, on the other hand, is often considered only if there's prolonged recovery. That is to say, if symptoms are not improving in the typical time period, in other words, if the athlete is not improving at the three to four week point, we may consider MRI at that time. Treatment and management. We'll talk about our treatment plan. And this uh, is probably a good time to mention that although we're talking about rest as one of our main treatment tools, we have to avoid excessive rest because that may actually contribute to the student athlete feeling sluggish from lack of activity or stressed about worrying uh, about the amount of schoolwork that's being missed. Really, it comes down to two main goals when we talk all the decisions we make revolve around these ideas. First, we want to avoid new collision until full recovery can be completed. And number two, we want to minimize the impact it has on the student athlete's schoolwork. From there, the treatment plan will focus on targeting the most prominent symptoms at that particular time for that particular student athlete. We want to prevent deconditioning, and that includes physical deconditioning, social isolation, cognitive deconditioning, and psychological effects. Starting from management, the initial two to three days will institute a period of relatively aggressive rest. This is the period where we'll have the athlete do very little schoolwork. If symptoms are significant, they may even stay home from school for a day or two and they may do very little exercise, such as basic stretching and walking. Studies have shown that if we continue with the highest levels of physical activity or the highest levels of cognitive activity uninterrupted, we may actually exacerbate symptoms and prolong recovery. In addition, those same studies also showed that the lowest level of activity may also prolong recovery. And so what we're trying to do is find the medium zone of activity, cognitive and exercise. We're trying to avoid exacerbating symptoms unnecessarily but also prevent deconditioning. So we aim for sensible rest and medium levels of non-contact exercise and medium levels of cognitive or brain activity. Both the exercise and cognitive activity will be done in short amounts in the beginning with frequent breaks and will advance and lengthen the amounts of time that 
each of those were attempted as symptoms allow. In this video, there are examples of exercise and academic progression guidelines that will help guide parents and students through the process. So we don't necessarily wait until patients are completely symptom-free before we reintroduce light school activity or light non-contact exercise, although we would not consider returning any athlete back to contact sports or high-intensity activity until all the symptoms have resolved and other forms of recovery have been assessed. Because it's been proven safe and effective, and because school is so important, we are a little bit more aggressive towards working with mild symptoms when it comes to advancing with schoolwork. And only as school is tolerated do we continue to advance more exercise intensity to higher and higher levels. Ideally, we get the patient back closer to a regular normal schedule. We try to keep a consistent sleeping and waking schedule, for instance, including during weekends and vacations. Patients can sleep as much as they'd like to in the beginning of the recovery process, but not at the expense of nighttime sleep quality. For instance, if patients are sleeping all day and then they can't sleep at night, it becomes very uncomfortable and difficult to recover. In those situations, we start to eliminate daytime naps and optimize nighttime sleep quality. We try to give the body all the tools it needs for recovery. That is to say, we optimize sleep, nutrition, and hydration. We try to avoid headaches from other causes, for instance, avoiding headaches from dehydration, low blood sugar, or excessive noise exposure. The phases of recovery are initially, as I said, two to three days starting with brief aggressive rest. And we try to minimize the amount of school missed by the student athlete. This is the introduction of activity, and in the other section we can see the exercise progression guidelines. At this beginning phase, it's really the nose breathing level of activity. That is to say, stretching, walking, exercises where the student athlete could still breathe through their nose comfortably. I like to have patients do stretching, do dedicated walking at least twice per day, typically 10 to 15 minutes at a time. This level of activity is intended just to shake the rust off and prevent deconditioning even though it's not the high-level conditioning that they might be used to. Later, as we advance to moderate-level non-contact exercise, we move forward when the patient is able to tolerate full days of school, even if they need some academic adjustments. Once they can physically tolerate being at school for the full day, the patient would then move on to the level of exercise we call the mouth-breathing, conversation-is-interrupted level. This means, for instance, if we were on stationary bikes next to each other, we'd have a hard time maintaining a smooth conversation because we'd be breathing harder and having to take breaths in between our conversation. At this level, it's still non-contact and low-risk exercise, but at this level, we may be advancing and introducing some light sport-specific exercises. For instance, soccer ball handling skills, light skating without contact, shooting baskets, or basic exercise with a little bit of rotation, a little bit of head movement introduced. Still, it's going to be medium level of intensity, non-contact, and low risk for accidental collisions. Patients may try slightly longer duration trials of exercise, such as 20 minutes to 25 minutes at a time. Then they stop the exercise, walk around, and they see if symptoms are worsened. If they're not worsened and the patient's feeling well enough, they can try another trial of exercise later on. Again, typically 20 or 25 minutes. These multiple attempts of brief exercise trials are more effective and less likely to produce symptoms than pushing through 45 or 60 minutes of exercise all at once. And this is the same principle we use with trying to progressively increase the cognitive challenges at school. Low to medium intensity cognitive challenges with frequent breaks and multiple little packets. I remind parents and patients we should avoid concerts and movie theaters because that may unnecessarily provoke symptoms such as headache or dizziness with the loud noises and flashing lights. 
We ask them to avoid high-risk activities that may cause injuries, such as snowboarding, skateboarding, water skiing, uh, exercises like that, until there's full recovery that can be documented. In addition, I ask patients and, and students to minimize texting or digital exposure, unless it's related to school. I think uh, answering some emails or texts here and there is fine, but we try to avoid excessive digital exposure in an effort to minimize headache exacerbation. Video games should be avoided until the patient can demonstrate that they can tolerate full days of school and schoolwork. Once school is tolerated, then digital restrictions are lifted. And what about managing schoolwork? Well, managing school is among the hardest parts of concussion recovery, and this has several reasons. First, concussion is not something that's readily visible to other students or teachers. Of course, the most obvious reason for difficulty with academics is the injured body part is responsible for concentration and memory. So it takes cooperation and extra efforts from the school, from parents, and from students. Typically, the treating clinician may send a letter requesting temporary academic adjustments until full recovery is achieved. This may include requests for extra time for projects or tests, reduced homework, or even delayed deadlines. Ultimately, the student will need to master all of the school material at some point so that they continue to build on that school material later in the year or the next year. Sometimes makeup work is planned to be completed during holiday breaks or vacations. We recognize that, unfortunately, schoolwork is going to be harder to complete than usual and even more physically uncomfortable to do schoolwork with headaches. So there's no perfect solution for this, but there are a few important principles to keep in mind. First, we should recognize that cognitive activity, although it may provoke headaches and, and symptoms such as eye strain, it's not going to injure the brain. So at a certain point, it may be more beneficial to start light to medium cognitive activities, even if symptoms have not fully resolved yet, in an effort to prevent cognitive deconditioning, social isolation, and to prevent the extra stress that comes along with missing schoolwork and having to make it up later. How long will it take to get better? Recovery is different for everyone, and each treatment plan will be individualized. Those with a history of prior concussion, headaches, learning disabilities, anxiety, or depression may take longer to recover. Concussion is an important topic for athletes, coaches, and parents to consider very seriously. But the good news is that the overwhelming majority of patients with concussion will have a full and rapid recovery. Most patients will recover by two to four weeks. A small number, likely up to 10% of young patients, may have symptoms beyond four weeks and sometimes as long as 12 weeks. Although dramatic complications in professional athletes have been in the news lately, the likelihood for long-term injury or lifelong problems from sports-related concussions is still extremely low. Most patients recover completely and with very few patients experiencing any prolonged problems. In addition, more and more progress is being made with improving methods of diagnosis and treatment. We talk about symptom clusters or domains, and generally we think about five different domains. Somatic, which is the headache, neck pain type domain. The vestibular is your balance and eye tracking domain. Emotional domain, cognitive or brain work activity domain, and then there's the sleep domain. For instance, if symptoms are persistent and headaches and neck pain are the most prominent symptoms, we may consider prescription medications, physical therapy, acupuncture, or even massage. For dizziness type symptoms, there are physical therapists who are trained in specialized treatments called vestibular therapy. This is an active recovery process that helps regain balance and vision tracking. For psychological symptoms, these are very common and we should recognize that sadness, frustration are 
almost universal for athletes who are recovering from prolonged injuries. This is common, for instance, in our folks who have ACL injuries and have a six-month recovery before they can return to sport. So we should recognize that it's not unusual. In addition for concussions, if there's continued headaches, struggle with schoolwork, lack of exercise, concerns about the future, this creates a situation where temporarily emotions are closer to the surface. People are quicker to anger or quicker to tears. It affects their overall energy level, and the stress itself can even affect concentration or schoolwork. So don't be surprised if your clinician suggests referral to a psychologist. They're a valued part of our treatment team, and they can help with getting things back on track and making the overall recovery process quicker. Cognitive symptoms are particularly difficult, especially during the busy school year. Again, the clinician may send home and send to school a letter requesting academic adjustments. But we should recognize it's common for concussions to feel more intense and even last significantly longer during the school year as compared to those injuries that occur in the summer months. It may be very frustrating for the student athlete and brief academic adjustments may be indicated, but the goal is to gradually return back to full academics. Moving on to the sleep domain, this is among the most important things to establish and regulate early on. Without quality nighttime sleep, we can expect daytime fatigue, irritability, trouble concentrating, and headache. We can expect lots of symptoms that are similar to concussion in the first place. And so we talk about naps being okay early on in the course, but we avoid daytime naps if nighttime sleep is interrupted. We talk about what's called sleep hygiene, which means making your sleep environment as good as possible for quality sleep. This includes techniques such as not doing your homework or watching TV in bed. We like to train the brain so that when the athlete goes to bed, they're ready to go to sleep. We ask them to turn off digital devices, anything with buzzing beeps or, or light displays, and turn them off at least an hour before even going to bed. The next question is very common, when can I go back to sports? We really need four criteria to feel comfortable with returning a player back to sports or any potential contact. First, symptoms should be resolved back to the pre-injury baseline. Academics should be tolerated. Exercise at low, medium, and high intensity should be tolerated. That means they shouldn't create symptoms during or after the exercise challenge. And the fourth criteria is that the cognitive assessment should be normal. This may include verbal or written testing, and in some offices like us, we use computer-based testing. Cognitive assessment is part of the diagnosis of concussion and part of the definition of recovery. Ideally, the clinician will have some example of the athlete's pre-injury or baseline performance on whatever cognitive test is going to be used for comparison. When the athlete is truly recovered from their concussion, we should expect that the athlete is able to perform at least as well on their post-injury test as they did on their pre-injury or baseline cognitive test. In our office, we use computerized testing, although clinicians can manage concussions safely and effectively without computerized testing. There are other available free tools like the SCAT and the Standardized Assessment of Concussion that are free and fairly easy to use measures of cognitive assessment. It should be noted that the computerized tests are just a very small part of the overall assessment. In fact, the other measures of recovery, such as symptom recovery, academic performance, and exercise stage tolerance, are much more important than the computerized testing itself. We typically consider computerized testing only after the other measures of recovery have been achieved. Am I at more risk for concussions in the future? Patients with prior concussions are at more risk to get another concussion than their peers who have never had one. This could be because of the concussion itself or because that particular individual was always more susceptible to begin with. 
What we are sure about is that the injured athlete is at a particular risk for worsening symptoms or prolonging symptoms with recurrent collisions before they have made a full recovery. This is why it is essential to identify and protect individuals, particularly those in sports who have symptoms that may not be dramatic or obvious. Full recovery may take longer than symptom resolution. How many is too many? There is no magic number to answer this question. Every patient is different as far as the injury itself and recovery. The most important thing to consider is if one or more concussions occur close together or consistently in the same sport. Concerning signs would be an unusually low threshold for concussion, meaning it seems to be getting easier and easier to get a concussion, or progressively longer recovery times. If the brain tissue hasn't completely healed and another injury occurs, then symptoms are generally worse and recovery prolonged. In this situation, discussions may include taking prolonged time out of contact sports, sometimes six months or a year. Or permanent retirement and avoidance of contact sports may also be considered. Prevention. An individual athlete and their family must make their own decisions about the risk and benefits of their particular sport. Exercise and sports participation can have benefits for athletes, but each sport has its own risk of injury. Some sports have higher rates of concussion than others, mostly those with more potential of contact and collision. Disappointingly, helmets, headbands, and mouthpieces have not yet been shown to reduce concussion rates or prevent concussions. Helmets do a very good job at preventing focal injuries such as skull fractures, but they don't prevent the rotational acceleration or the shifting of the brain in the skull with that rapid whiplash type movement. We've been working hard at Children's Hospital and at the McKaylee Center for Sports Injury Prevention to find strategies that prevent injuries of all kinds, including concussion. And we've been encouraged by some of our programs, some of which that target head and neck as well as shoulder strengthening or programs that improve balance and coordination. The idea is that specific training may help reduce awkward falls or collisions, and they may help reduce the rotational acceleration or that violent whiplash effect that can contribute to shifts of the brain in the skull and therefore contribute to concussion. Sports leagues, coaches, referees, and athletes must adhere to rules that are designed to prevent injuries. Rule changes and rule enforcement, particularly those designed to protect defenseless athletes or prevent unexpected blindside type collisions, do reduce concussions. Summary. Concussions are serious and complex injuries that can affect many aspects of an individual's life. If a concussion is suspected, it is essential to avoid further injury or collision until full recovery is confirmed by a qualified healthcare provider. This means immediate withdrawal from practices, games, or any activity that places the individual at risk for repeat injury. Goals during recovery include avoiding new collisions, minimizing the impact on school, and avoiding deconditioning. Prolonged recovery can be complex and uncomfortable, but we have many tools in place that we can use for treatment. Recovery is defined as a resolution of concussion symptoms, return of baseline academic performance, tolerance of exercise challenge, and some measure of cognitive performance, sometimes with computerized testing. Thank you very much for watching. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.